Onyx Hunt is our go-to solution for anything mapping related, whether we're at the house or in the field, whether we're using the tracking feature in order to kind of figure out exactly where we're going in and out of the woods, to also implementing the new cell camera feature where you can actually link your different cell cameras that you may have from different brands and be able to get all those photos sent directly through the Onyx app where you can actually see them on your maps and be able to go through all your photos right there in one place. You can use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout and save 20% on your Onyx Onyx membership. Onyx has been extremely helpful for us the last six years, and I'm sure it'll be helpful for you. So know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know the drill. Good optics are a must, whether you're running a red dot sight on your turkey gun or you're running some binos this turkey season, or if you're shopping for a new rifle scope. Vortex Optics needs to be the first place you look. They got something for everybody, whether you're wanting to get some entry-level glass or if you're wanting top-of-the-line glass and really good stuff, they got that too. They also have an unbeatable VIP warranty. If something happens to your Vortex Optic, you can send it in. They will fix it or replace it. Best warranty in the business, bar none. Head on over to MidwayUSA.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN to get a discount on your order of any Vortex product. Again, that's MidwayUSA.com. Go use that promo code SOUTHERN. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the show. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Meadow Creek Mounts is your go-to mounting option for red dots on your turkey shotgun. And one of my favorite features about this mount is you don't have to drill and tap your shotgun in order to mount a red dot onto your shotgun. I personally have used this mount the last two seasons and it's worked extremely well for me. One thing I personally like about it is because it's so low onto the barrel when it mounts to the rib of your shotgun, it allows for a very natural head positioning when shouldering your gun. Also an advantage of using a red dot compared to maybe just a traditional bead on your shotgun is you get a much more clear view of the turkey and you're able to kind of see what else is around there and making sure you're perfectly on that bird. Now if you're interested in giving Meadow Creek Mounts a try you can go over to the website MeadowCreekMounts.com and use the code SOUTHERN at checkout to be able to save 10% on your order. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Uh, we're sitting here for this outro. I got the ginger bow hunter here next to me. How you doing? What's going on, everybody? Super fired up. Super fired up. It was a good, it was a good, good Monday's episode. Kind of kick us off for uh, you know getting into May and kind of getting, yep, getting, getting ready for the season. But on the phone with us, we are actually through FaceTime. We're looking at his forehead right now. We got the Dilla Michael Pike. What's the going Killa on? What's up? What's up, guys? Man, listen, not you know, not all of us, dude, been at the beach for the last three or four days, man. I mean, you got your little tan working, dude. Drinking margaritas hey, yeah, on the I, beach. I have a really nice tan going on. And uh, <laughs> what's funny is, is I got to work four days, and then I'm headed back for another four or five days. Mm. Hey, there you go. Mm. That's what per- I'm talking about. Perks living in Alabama, man. You're only a few hours away from the beach. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, well, dude. Uh, on another note, so this past Monday's episode, or this, I guess, this Monday's episode. Shane Parker, and then, of course, Paul Patera on there talking about uh, these buck hubs in a part one series uh, to really, it was a two-part episode, but the more we kind of talked about this and talked to them, 
I think there's going to be some multiple other episodes that come from this, which is going to be super interesting. Yeah, and the feedback we've gotten too. Uh, yeah. I think that all three of us have gotten some messages on, on like maybe future topics, but also uh, just what Shane was talking about with the travel routes, the stuff that he never got to, mm-hmm. part one or part two. So yeah, easily. I mean, dude, you could easily get two or three more podcasts out of it. Yeah, it's, it's going to be super interesting to kind of see that. But this week's episode. Uh, we kind of did the part one series, which it's kind of interesting because right where Angie cut it at, and it kind of faded out. Right when you know this next Monday's episode comes out, the part two to it, it's going to be meat and potatoes in the first two minutes. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, like, like, oh, I forgot that we split it. I forgot we split it. That's why I was wondering. I was talking about as like an episode three. I guess now it'd be like an episode four. You you can seriously, there's a lot of information there. Yeah, we didn't even make it to one thing that Shane was talking about was th- on this two-part series, we pretty much spent the whole time talking about hubs and and then also in the second part we talk a lot about weather and moon phase and and general things like that that he thinks affect deer movement. Uh but he was like, "Man, we didn't even touch travel routes because, you know, he he was running so many cameras, but only a certain number of those cameras are actually on hubs. A lot of them were actually on the trails between the hubs as well." monitoring those those travel patterns and and how they change and how those trails are shifting around and really really interesting stuff uh that actually relates back to a lot of other episodes we've done like i think it was clifton denny we did last year who was talking about based on like wind velocity you're gonna have deer moving either high up on a ridge or low down based on how fast the wind is going so it's like if you got if you got three major trails at three different elevations you know he's like okay if the wind's doing this i think they're gonna be on this trail and so Shane's got, you know, he's going to have a lot of information on that running that many trail cameras, which is going to be the interesting aspect to kind of see not only like what a theory is, but also what the data is showing, mm-hmm. you know, based off the trail cam locations and everything else. But yeah, super interesting. But uh, also one thing I found that was fascinating was, again, from the episode, having both Shane and Paul on. Paul's up in New Jersey, but hunts Pennsylvania a whole bunch, New York, the whole nine yards. I think but, he said Ohio too, right? Yeah, in Ohio some. But it's like he's seeing... In his own area, what Shane's seeing on the trail camera footage and everything down here, he's seeing the same kind of stuff happening up there, uh, based off you know how the how these bucks are using these hubs. And also, one thing I found very interesting is the lack of does coming to these hubs. Like the does, does weren't going there necessarily. It was I think Shane said on the podcast, it's majority, if not all the time, it's only going to be bucks there um, in these areas. Um, which is kind of fascinating because mm-hmm. clearly does are just not going through there, but the bucks are laying down sign. They're coming through. It's like kind of a, you know, a point of crossing right there. And again, it's something that Paul's been seeing as well up in, you know, kind of the upper nor- or kind of that Northeast, the East coast where he's been hunting. Yep. So one thing I've been thinking about is they actually have a lot. Uh, it seems like a lot of similarities that they're seeing. And I- I'm wondering if a lot of that has to do with um, the timing of the rut that Shane is seeing over there because of course y'all know there's a lot of different ruts in Alabama depending on where you're at and some of the the breeding dates you know they they basically say that you know let's say a majority like you know black warrior for instance is kind of like the middle of November but then you have the outskirts of the national forest which are hitting in, you know, late December. And I'm wondering if we're going to find some 
when these actual ruts, I guess, are are happening, and if that would potentially change our thoughts on the moon. And I'm I'm wondering if it just so happens that it lines up with those particular areas, and if we would see any differences in, say, an area where the rut's hitting, you know, the end of the month or the first of the month versus the middle of the month. And, and things like that. No, I think that's interesting. And the, on the aspect of, you know, both areas that, you know, where these guys are coming from, both have that very similar rut time. And like you said, it, it would be interesting if that same movement in kind of travel patterns and everything still relates to areas outside that. I think, I still think it would, but also I'll say this. I think one interesting aspect of like where both these guys are hunting at in a generality, I know they both hunt some areas that aren't big woods, but both these guys, Kind of in this conversation, is talking a little bit more kind of big wood setting. I feel like if you're in an area like some other pieces of public land that we've hunted, where it's like majority, you know, a lot of cutovers up on your ridge tops, and all your hubs are either in the cutover where like you can't get to it, or you know, potentially in like one of the SMZs around it, it's just very, very different kind of cover type versus what a lot of these guys are talking about within these big wood settings. Because uh, that was one thing Shane talked about is like some of these areas that these bucks are traveling through are, are fairly open. Um, and they're just comfortable moving through there, you know, because of whatever the conditions are, they have some kind of advantage. Um, but again, I, that's one thing that I, I find is a similarity is like both these guys are hunting big wood settings. that are just probably, probably 1100 miles apart from each other. Um, if so, but they're still seeing the same kind of factors, the same kind of movement patterns and everything else, which is again, that's super, super interesting. Cause you're talking from a guy down in Alabama, having something that's relating to a guy up in Jersey, which. One reason why we started the podcast is because previously, I, I wish people could see our text chain between those two. Yeah, it was just just wild, wild, thousands of messages. Whoa, now a little, <laughs> little over. No, I don't know, dude. Like, I, I would. I, it's it's way on up there. It's, it's a way lot. On up it's, there. It takes you, a hot minute to scroll to the top of that thread. It'd take you a solid probably like five minutes straight of scrolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a long read for sure. Um yeah, I mean they're seeing the same thing. That's uh and it also makes me think about they're they're doing this in a big wood setting like you said and in a setting more like what we're used to with pine thickets or just some other kind of thicket whatever the case may be. But especially like in timber country here in the south where everything's cut down to an SMZ basically to where like the hill drops off. How many of these hubs are just in like thickets that we just can't really get into, and the deer are probably still using it just the same way that they would, you know, terrain wise. That if it wasn't a thicket, um, and it just kind of makes it unattainable. Because I can think of a couple spots that end up being kind of like these hubs they were talking about that are in thickets that I just ended up crawling into for you know one reason or another, uh, and they're just can't really hunt them. I mean, you can hunt them where there's a will, there's a way, but uh, it's 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 tough for sure. Yeah. Another thing that it makes me think about is I wonder if deer density has anything, you know, if it changes anything. Well, another thing too is, is, uh, they're not talking about just hill country. And I think they might've mentioned this in part one. I know they mentioned it in part two for sure, but this, this will also work in flatland. It's something that you can also find there. And Paul actually in our group message sent a couple of examples where it wasn't straight up like pancake flatland, but it was like cases where you have like very, very gentle rolling hills, but you have like a big, big giant wide creek bottom where that big creek bottom is real like wide across and really flat. And then you kind of, when you start getting out of the creek bottom, the hills start coming up 
and there'll be like a I don't know how to put it, like a cutout almost. Um there's like a there's like a I don't know. What's the word I'm trying to look for here? Like where the hill starts, there'll be like a like an indention right there. Like almost like someone took like a ice cream scoop and like scooped out a little part of the hill. And it might be like where a where a little tiny creek comes out or a spring comes out or something like that. And Paul was pointing out examples that were in areas kind of like that. Where if you're think of think of where the hills start is almost like an edge, and bam, you got like a decent little indention in that edge, and that's where that hub's at. So it can relate to not just like mountainous hill country stuff. They sent plenty of examples of that too in our group messages, which I wish I could share, but like I can't share their spots, you know. Like Yeah, I I remember what I was gonna say. So not only the deer density, but uh the cover. So I wonder if it changes what time they're visiting these if they're in better cover mm. you know versus that more open you know cover type in the mountains versus like what we see at that particular wma that we hunt i wonder if that changes anything yeah and another interesting thing that shane said was that not all of these spots are necessarily like in complete big woods he was talking about like one of those bucks being embedded and decently close to a like a pine thicket um and not necessarily being in the thicket, but he's bedded off of it somewhere. Not even on the edge of it sometimes. He did mention some beds on the edge, but uh, not all those beds are right there on the edge or in the thicket. He's saying they're further out on hillsides and stuff, which makes me wonder like how many I'm missing where we like to hunt. Hey, we need to go back and look at that one camera where I had all those bucks. Remember the camera I forgot from the previous year? Yep. We need to go back to that scrape and and figure out if it lines up or not. Oh yeah. Yeah, we could. That'd be fun. Yeah, it, I mean it just makes it makes me like go back and reevaluate a lot of this stuff. It, it it did make me think about when me and Jacob were scouting uh the new area that we're going to start hunting this fall a couple weeks ago and it made me realize kind of what we did wrong was we kind of blew past a lot of these hubs and their scouting style, they're talking about like man, they really narrow down on an area and when they find something interesting they they really focus in and scout that area out really hard we're like okay cool rub oh there's a scrape oh there's another rub let's keep going and we're trying to get to that that like big point or that big saddle up on the hill and we go to that spot and we look around and then we're like okay here's a bench down here let's go look at that bench and we never really took the time to slow down and really just like look around an area and figure out exactly what's going on in that one area Right, which is something I think we're gonna have to do next time we go in there for sure. Yeah, yeah that uh, that area that I got the the big bucks on camera this past uh, season, uh, it's the same ridge system that I've hunted previously, but I hunted basically at the other end. And what I ended up finding out is there's a whole lot more sign where I was hunting before, and it's kind of making me think maybe that's where I should have been focusing more of my attention on where that sign was because I found good big rubs, lots of scrapes. I know for a fact that that's where the does were. And what threw me off of there, hunting up there in that general area was I saw five bucks that one morning when I was hunting, but they were all dinks. Like they were all like these, a real small tight rack eight point or, or down to a spike. But what I'm, you know, kind of thinking is 
maybe that's the area that I should have been focusing on and should have put the cameras up there because just because that one day, you know, all I saw was five little young bucks doesn't mean that those big bucks weren't in there, you know, because I mean, the sign was there The where I put the camera at, there really wasn't any sign. So I, I think I'm gonna have to revisit that area and, you know, put out more cameras in those locations where the sign was because that could be my central hubs. Maybe I'm just on the outskirt, you know, maybe I'm just picking them up here and there. So maybe that's closer to where their little core area would have been. Another thing that they talked about too, was just the sign aspect. And that this is where it can get a little bit confusing. I feel like, cause they were like, don't rely too much on the sign. Sometimes the actual hub is like, uphill or downhill of where that like real concentration of sign is which to i feel like i don't know i feel like they focus a lot on really subtle types of sign that maybe a lot of other people aren't keying in on where it's like oh here's this giant scrape and i got all these big rubs right here down this hill but you go up the hill and you've got four or five different sets of big tracks that are crossing each other and like that's the hub and people are missing that spot Mm. up the hill because they're walking right through there and they're not seeing the same amount of sign that they just walked past. But guys like Paul and Shane, they're looking down at the ground. They're saying, okay, look at this huge track. Okay, here's another one. They're coming from four different directions. You know, and they're swinging through in this spot that gives them an advantage where they can like look down here and see that or, or they can catch the thermals coming up the hill and smell it. And, uh, and that's the spot. And people are just, you know, sitting, especially with bow hunting, dude. I mean, if you're 100 yards in the wrong direction, yeah, I mean, you might not even see the deer, especially where we live. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And there's a spot that comes to mind that I, I scouted up there just two weeks ago. There was a big back wall. I found like four or five big beds. And I found the what I call um, what I basically think of as like the uh, rubs that they're making, like whenever they shed their velvet or something like that, like around their beds, like whip rubs, pretty close by. Yeah, those little whip rubs. And, um, I basically went further up the hill right there and I found, you know, just one little scrape, but where that scrape was positioned at, there was a drop off below it. There was a real thick thicket that they couldn't come through. And so they had to go through this little gap right here before the ridge opened up. And I think that right there would have been like an overlooked spot. You know, if you didn't, if you didn't, you know, sit there and think about, you know, what was going on here. Yeah, man. And when it comes to scrapes too, and hubs, you know, you know, one guy who we interviewed late last year, who I think was like really onto something with this, Baxley. Baxley killed. Uh, he's killed a, a mountable buck. He's killed a couple really nice bucks three years in a row in like the same week on scrapes. And uh, and just going through that, uh, we did that episode somewhere around Christmas last yeah. year. Yeah. And, uh, I, that's, that's one to go back to listen to if you're interested in the subject, because just the way that he's talking about it, he, he has consistent success on scrapes every year. And especially cause he's, he's done it three years in a row on the same property. I feel like that's enough. We're like, okay, he's definitely onto something. It's not just luck. Like you're not going to get lucky on that big of a deer three years in a row the same week, you know? Right. Uh, hey, another one that I'd mentioned to Jacob the other day was, uh, when we interviewed Greg Skufka and uh and um bill um uh, bill vale bill vale they had some really good 
information on those uh, scrapes and when those basically occurred. Yeah, Greg Scuff, that, that was another interesting one because that episode, I'm trying to remember, that was the, I think it was the Magic of the Licking Branch. Yeah. Was, was that the name? Licking Branch Magic. Licking Branch, Licking Branch Magic. I think magic. that's the name of his book, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. But anyways, yeah, Mike, that's, that is a good point because, yeah, you did bring that up a couple of days ago when we were discussing about some of these topics. And, you know, they very, at least Greg specifically, very closely analyzed trail cameras and those primary scrape and how they were being used in and around that thick cover and was strategically targeting and killing bucks off those primary scrapes. And he was setting those scrapes up. He was personally setting those mock scrapes in areas where the deer are extremely comfortable coming into them and checking them inside some thick cover, but he could sit with his bow just on the outside of that thicket up in a tree stand and be able to shoot down into that that uh, that primary hub or that primary scrape um, area. So, and I think, I'm trying to remember, I should have gone back, Mike, since you brought that up and re-listened to that episode when he was talking about like the timing, because there is a very specific timing uh, that they would notice when the bucks would come through they would leave for a little bit, period of time, and then there was a certain window. Once you had him on camera, it was very often, like within a certain window of time, and he was going to be back there during daylight within a short window of time, and that's when they would right. go in and kill him. Um, and it's like, yeah, how could that be used potentially, like taking that amount of that knowledge versus what Paul and also Shane's doing, running these cameras and kind of seeing where these hubs of activity are at and going in there and kind of doing that as well when you understand more of the travel aspect. Because that's one thing about... Um, Greg, I felt like, at least rethinking about that podcast, he wasn't too worried about, I don't think, so much about the travel of the buck. He's just kind of putting that scrape inside the thick cover. The buck was going to come to it just naturally because there's does in the area. But I feel like the way Paul and Shane are thinking about it, especially up in the mountains, more so of like, hey, this buck's coming here from a few different potential directions. What makes the most sense for him for like an ambush point? And if you kind of match those two together, like pay attention to not only the travel path, path of travel, and also that primary scrape, which is that, you know, potential, uh, you know, attracted for that deer. You know, it's like it works hand in hand, probably give you a leg up on like what you're looking for, especially if we're talking more like mountains here mm-hmm. um, and not so much like flatland hill country, which still could work there. But mm-hmm. I feel like there's something very specific about the, a lot of these mountain hunters and like the the uh, the limited aspect of uh, where a buck can and can't travel or where he really does want to travel versus where he doesn't really want to travel and kind of put him in the right spot. So, yep, hundred percent, dude. Um, also, another interesting thing is the the aspect of catching these bucks as they're kind of checking in with the does. Which Michael, I think you might have brought up in this episode where you're saying, "Hey, like a month before the rut comes in, like we get bucks swinging through, almost like they're, I don't know, like scouting it out. Mm. You know, they're they're coming and hitting those doe groups, and they're like, okay, who's ready? Who's not? Where are you at?" You know, who all's in this doe group, I guess. Uh, and I think Shane talked about that and kind of brought it up a little bit. But I'd be, I'd, I'm really interested to hear Shane talk more about the doe group stuff, too. Because uh, he, he did talk a lot about, uh, I can't remember if it was in part one or in our text messages or what, but he was talking a lot about tracking doe groups and monitoring individual doe groups. And actually, the first time that Shane messaged us, which was last year, talking about this subject, he was talking about, hey, dude, I've got nine different doe groups sectioned off and, and this doe groups over here, this doe groups over here. And those home ranges like kind of overlap a little bit, but they're like in their distinct areas. And and he was talking a lot about tracking those individual doe groups, which I find super interesting that he was able to narrow down like 
this doe group lives in this drainage and they spend most of their time here. And he was able to narrow it down and, and define where those are at. And I feel like that gives you a leg up if you're like, okay, this doe group's here, this doe group's there. If I'm if I'm going from this group to that group, how am I going to do it? You know, if if he's a buck cruising through there for travel, yeah, yeah for travel. Well, <clears throat> I know that y'all know how excited I got when we were talking about the lunar phase. Mm. I thought that that was the, you know, the bread and butter to me. It cats me just out. Because, just because of how much he talked about the the visits increased. Like a what do you say? Like a two hundred percent increase? Yep. I mean, it was just that that kind of blew my mind. Like I knew it was there. I was seeing it, but you know, I've I've never really ran that many cameras, and to to see that that's you know how it was kind of across the board uh, was really eye opening. And another thing was that for the full moon, didn't he say that most of those were at night, or all of them just about were at night? And then with the new moon, they were like mid morning to like midday, mid afternoon. Well, I'll, I'll say this, Pike. You know, that's coming out on part two, coming out on Monday. So, you know, <laughs> jumping ahead here, but yeah, no, you're right. No, you you are right there. Uh, kind of like what he was talking about, and like for timing wise, for hunting purposes, how one would probably be a better bet than the other, which kind of I think went hand in hand with what we talked about a couple weeks ago with you and that card pool you pulled is like there was a specific pattern. Uh, around that new mo- new moon slash full moon, and there was like a better opportunity based on one of those lunar patterns, at least based off that one camera that you pulled. Right. I bet that there's going to be a lot of uh, listener success stories related to to their podcast that we did with them. Oh, I really do. Well, well, es- especially when you can narrow down that 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 kind of timing. Mm-hmm. I, I really do. I really think that there's going to be some success stories from that. Yeah, because we talked about in part two, the window of time. There's a very specific window of time that 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 move increases and when you should be out there. And, and now, who this <laughs> comes back to, you just mentioned Bill Vale. That's exactly what Bill Vale talked about when we interviewed him, Mike, and you and me sat right. down and talked to him. Like There's a very specific, like you can look at it. On, on the one we dropped or the one we didn't drop? Did we drop that one, Mike? I can't. Y'all, I y'all did a... Big long one with him that never got dropped. We 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 did the video. Do you remember the video kept messing up? Yeah, when we were doing the editing. Mm-hmm. So ex- re-explain this, uh, like what Bill Vell talked oh, about. Oh no, no, I can't really re-explain it. Like, but y- y'all yeah, need, y- you know, you really no, you can't. But there's a window time. This what, what Bill Vell? What talks we about. would need to do is is do like an episode with Bill and Greg and then Shane, and I mean just. Blow the see roof how off. much of it see how much of it kind of overlaps yep uh well bill has <laughs> his lunar calendar that he's developed and it's he can look at the calendar every single year and look at based off new moon and full moon of there's a four was like four days on the front end four days on the back end so roughly an eight day window time that you go out there it's like you can only hunt a few days of a month, you need to hunt inside that window of time and not necessarily worry about anything else, whether it's the rut or not. Like there's gonna be a spike of movement. And per what we're gonna hear about in part two with Shane, he kind of starts getting some of this based off his own data with 170 cameras. Which, not to get it too sidetracked here, I want to mention this real quick. There were some people on social media about this episode that were giving them all kinds of hell. Like, why the hell would you buy 170 cameras, run them on eight eight hundred <laughs> acres, and all this stuff? What people don't know, Shane was part of a study for a university. 
I don't think we can disclose quite yet because there's still some stuff un- like going on yeah. and all that kind of stuff they're trying to figure out. When we say study, we mean study. I mean like an actual study. Literally like study. an actual study. And that's how he was able to get a lot of these trial cameras and be able to run them for this university to be able to do all this stuff, uh, you know, kind of on the ground. So if you're wondering, you know, how did Shane spend $15,000 plus on trail camera gear? <laughs> he didn't necessarily. He got, you know, he's got his own cameras, which I think he, says he, he got, was running a lot of his I own. I think he says he's got like 60, 65 of his own cameras. Uh, and the other ones are kind of part of the study, but he was able to kind of use all that data and, you know, they wanted specific data from the studies. Yep. And then Shane was able to do with whatever he wanted to when it came to the actual, you know, data collection and looking at a lot of these different uh, aspects, like running the weather stations and stuff at some of these different camera sites. But I just want to put that out there for people. Again, it's not like Shane, you know, I mean, I don't know. Shane, Shane, Shane probably is a baller. He has 65 cameras. I mean, he balls out. Yeah, but, no kidding. But that's again, a he, lot of cameras. But he was man. part of a study, and that's why they're trying to do this concentration on deer movement and trying to figure out what's going on there. So I just want to put that out there. That's, again, all the people that were on social media that said, like, they were like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Clearly, they didn't listen to the podcast about like what was learned. Because my thing is, this episode, or these, these episodes with Shane and Paul, aren't about like, you should go run 170 cameras. That's not what we're trying to talk about. The, what this whole point of doing these episodes is about is what they have learned based, or what Shane has learned based off doing this. And what are the takeaways for us as the hunters? Yeah, exactly. It's not like, like you have to have 170 trail cameras to be successful. Yeah. That's not what we're saying. And that's not the whole point of this episode. It's about what did he learn from doing this study? And it's still an active study. They're still working on it. But what has he learned from doing this that is takeaways for us as other hunters to be able to go out there and, and potentially implement some of these things that he's keying in on? Yeah. And hey, a lot of this too also has to do with, I feel like, hunter perception. So we're talking about moon phase here. It's like okay, I saw a two hundred percent increase on uh, on in, on movement with moon phase. What is it? You know, general deer movement? Or are they just hitting scrapes more, or using certain travel paths more? Are they moving the same amount, or just in different areas? Or, and we've talked to some other people that are like, man, you get that mature buck on your camera, and he busts your camera, or you go in there too much, like he's gone, he's he's left, and he's not coming back. And you'll talk to great hunters who say that. Um, but then you talk to guys like Shane and Paul and they're like, no, really, it seems like they're just moving 15 feet and avoiding your camera. And, and Shane's like fanning those cameras out. And it's just interesting that again, two different guys, two different parts of the country seeing the same thing where if that buck is comfortable there, it's like, you can't get him to leave. He's going to stay there and he's just going to keep adapting to your pressure. So it's probably the same way with how we hunt. You know, if he's putting that camera at eye level and that buck comes by and sees that camera, he's like, well, I don't like that. I'm going to walk 15 yards behind it this way or 15 yards the other way. And then you put another camera and he sees that one. He's just he's just adjusting to that pressure. So uh, I feel like that's another important aspect of this where people are like, well, you're going to ruin your spot. Well, it doesn't seem like they ruined it because they're tracking the same mature bucks this whole time with I mean, think about the amount of pressure it takes to put out 170 cameras, even if you're not checking all of them, you know, every week or whatever, but just, you got to run those cameras. He's running some of them pretty often. And then he's going in there and hunting on top of that. That's a lot of pressure that just he's putting on it and it's public land. So who knows who else is in there? And he was talking about four or five guys coming past one of the scrapes on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. And then the buck coming in right behind him and making a scrape. I mean, didn't he, didn't he say that or come in and at least visit the scrape? Mm -hmm. So another thing that I, I really liked that he mentioned in that podcast was if, 
if you know he was coming in from one angle sometimes like he was successful by looping around and coming back in from a different direction so he was like coming in one way say going across or or side hill on the ridge but then looping back either under or either back over the opposite side and come back into the same spot uh to basically make the deer think that it's the same principle as if somebody were to drop you off, you know, you're, you're going past that point and then looping back around into that same area from a different direction. And I thought that that was really good. Yeah. And we kind of mentioned that in the episode, kind of exactly what you and uh, Clay did that one time when you killed that buck. Yeah. Exactly. You both walked in there and you're like, Hey man, will you leave and, and let me sit here and let them hear you leave. And then you killed a buck doing that. Yeah. So right. Same same exact principle. Yeah. I mean that's that's super interesting when you think about it. I mean these the deer they're I've, they're confident where they live. I mean they're the masters of their own domain. So wouldn't it make more sense for that deer to use the terrain to his advantage and terrain that he knows? Why would he get up and just leave? And especially if you're talking like national forest public land, wh- where's he gonna go where no one's yeah. pressuring him? Uh, no, well, he can't go anywhere. It's like well, it's like. Wasn't it Shane that mentioned that uh, his son or buddy came in on the four wheeler? Yeah, and he was out there hunting, and the the deer just ended up getting up and moving just a little bit, and then coming right back into the same spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm talking about is the why would that deer not use that terrain to his advantage? Because uh, I feel like you kind of box your your mind in, and even in in places where you're, maybe you're hunting ag land that's pretty highly pressured, and it's like, man, you're afraid that you're going to go in there and bump that deer, and he's going to like leave. Well, where's where's he going to go? Is he going to go on the neighbor's place that's getting hunted just as hard? Yeah, uh, and especially in Shane's context, I mean, and what a lot of probably <clears throat> what our listeners hunt, you know, if you're in a a two thousand acre club next to another club, which is next to another club, which is next to another club. Like, where's he going to go? Everywhere's getting hunted. So why would yeah. he not just stay where he's familiar and use it to his advantage? And it's like, yeah. how how can you adjust to relocate that deer? That, that's one of the bigger things. I just find that so interesting. It's so fascinating how he's like, yeah, I had to put out like 14 cameras, but he was still there. He was just weaving through those cameras and avoiding that pressure I was putting on him. When you think turkey calls... Think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call you know, that I can cut on really hard, where on other situations, I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation. And hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. 
as deer seasons come to a close for most of us in the southeast, this is when you really got to start paying attention when we start getting these warmer temps for a lot of these insects. It was actually kind of crazy. We were out hunting a couple weeks ago with the dogs, and we got into a bunch of ticks in a day that it was just two days before everything was froze up and iced up. But make sure you're protecting yourself and your family with Sawyers. Everything from the best insect repellents, especially their DEET products, but also the Precaridin products for protecting yourself from ticks, mosquitoes, all kinds of flying insects as well, but also their water filtration devices, first aid kits, and more. Sawyer's has you covered. You can pick up Sawyer's products from a lot of your sporting goods stores, whether you have a local sporting goods store or one of the big box stores like a Bass Pro Shop or even like a Walmart. You can pick up your Sawyer products from there. Again, we've truly enjoyed using Sawyer products. And again, as we head into the springtime, it's going to be more and more important, especially with the insect repellents, to make sure that you're well protected going into this springtime. So give Sawyer's a chance going into this turkey season. You know, we've had a, a legendary outdoor store here in Birmingham called Mark's Outdoors for the last 40 years. Family owned and operated, absolutely a staple in the hunting community here. And we're excited to announce that they have gone national with their e-commerce. So no matter where you're at, you can go get access to all the awesome gear and awesome deals at MarksOutdoors.com. We got a link in the description for them. They've actually got some of our favorite ammo. They have an excellent ammo selection, excellent knife selection, excellent firearm selection. Y'all can go check them out. You won't be disappointed. Everything you need from apparel, archery, firearms, ammo, reloading, gun cleaning, and fishing. They have an unbelievable fishing department. And hey, if you are local or if you're passing through Birmingham, drop on into Mark's Outdoors. Head on over to the bow counter to Mark and Robbie and tell them that we sent you. Once again, that's MarksOutdoors.com, or you can go hit the link in the description of this podcast to check them out. Yeah, I would really like to see maybe if he could take those cameras this next season and put them over beds, like all the beds, like on one ridge and just see if he can catch them bouncing, you know, between the different beds and, and how long they're staying. Is there, you know, cause Paul brought up something really interesting that I hadn't really ever thought about before, but there's, there's beds that they're, they're coming to, they're, they're getting into an area maybe. And I, you know, was it Paul that we talked to before or was it somebody else that said that, they came to the edge of the, like, say, like a pine thicket or something like that and would bed up. Then they would move into a different area and then bed again. And then they were basically working themselves into the interior bedding area. Yeah. Wasn't it? Was it, was it Paul or was it, or was it somebody else, Jacob? Do you remember that? It, that was, that. I think that was Shane talking about that. And he said that he would have, like, this one buck, he would have a bed that he would get in, like, at gray light. And then he would get up in the morning and go to another bed. And like, eventually he would like his third bed or whatever, he would be right tucked, like tucked right into this really, really thick stuff. And then Paul said, that's where he's going to sleep. Like he's tucked right. Yeah. He's tucking his head in. he's putting his antlers on the ground. And that's where he's going into a deep sleep. He's like in that real secure cover. Right. Right. Where the other beds are, maybe he, that's where he's like chewing his cud or he's just hanging out. I don't know whatever he's doing, catching some thermals, watching a trail, whatever a deer does, you know, whatever they're thinking, I guess. Yeah. What well, makes you think, you know, like, I wonder if a lot of these beds, you know, that aren't well worn in, if those are just, you know, those beds that they're getting in right at gray light and, and they're setting up just to make sure that nothing's, you know, following them in or something. Maybe I don't, I don't know, just waiting for gray light. Cause you know, I've, I've said before, like, I noticed that an hour, like before daylight that the deer seem to like bed down and it's not too long after that, that they get up. 
and move back towards, you know, a different area. And, you know, that could be exactly what they're doing. They're, they're just bedding down in these spots and then getting up and moving into more secure areas where they can feel more comfortable and get into that deeper sleep or, or more restful state. Yeah. And that's something that me and you, Pike, we talked about a decent bit last year was, uh, you see that flurry of movement right there after daylight. And it's the spots where I especially see that. And that happened. Like I remember me and you, I think I was just talking to you on the phone one time last year. And, uh, we were talking about that and I went hunting like the next morning and I hunted a spot that was thick bedding cover. It was like a thick SMZ that ran through thick bedding cover. And I got in really, really early and right before it got daylight, right. It was, it was barely even gray light. I could hear stuff moving and then, uh, it got light outside and then probably about 15 minutes after you could see really good. And I started seeing deer and I started hearing stuff moving around all, all over the place. And so, yeah, I think it, and this particular SMZ has a lot of beds actually in the SMZ along the creek and it's not very thick, but it's like where they can go and they can feed under an oak and they can lay down and they're three bounds away from really good, really good cover. Um, and it's one of those spots I get all day activity and I had a camera in there on a little scrape underneath the red oak and it was just like early bow season. It was like buck, buck, buck daylight, like every other day they're just. 11 a.m noon 1 p.m like they're just always in there and that and that's what i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast it'd be interesting to see where we where we usually hunt if that activity was you know less less constricted to a certain time Mm -hmm. when the deer feels comfortable because they got that thick cover everywhere so they feel more secure more safe to to feed around all throughout the day yeah no, it's an interesting subject, dude. I mean, it get, gets my wheels spinning quite a bit. Yeah. And and I like what you said, too, about the some of those beds aren't as worn in. And on some episodes that people hear later, we'll hear from some people who are talking about finding these beds in that open stuff that are really like worn into the dirt, which I think Shane talked about that a little bit. But it's like they don't have any thick cover, these, these guys coming up in a couple of weeks that we talked to. They don't have any thick cover. And so the mm. bedding for them is super definable. It's a fascinating episode. So whenever they don't have the really good cover, are they bedding on the nastiest slope? Yes. Is they're that, they're is bedding that... on the steepest thing they can find. Uh, yeah. And then they're I guess like they have on. to. I mean, you, yeah. you basically, I mean, that's where I would go. It, I mean, unless I could climb a tree, which deer yeah. can't <laughs> climb trees. I mean, that's where I would go is the, the, the nastiest slope. I mean, because you don't, you don't have the cover so that you don't have some kind of, of advantage over a predator. Yeah. And I, I think that that, you know, same thing with the back walls, you know, you got to have some kind of something to help you out to get you from, I guess, to keep you from getting killed. Yeah. Well, and even and that's the- what we, that's what we'd have to think about, you know, all these different areas we go. Sometimes you have cover and sometimes cover is your, you know, your, your main reason for bedding in an area. But if you don't have any cover, then you know, you're limited. So you got to find something else that's going to benefit you, which is why sometimes when they find them better to, you know, close to the roads, because that they may not have the cover where it's really beneficial towards them. Yeah. Well, last year in the place that we normally hunt on two separate occasions, I found we always talk about on that place. You just, you just never find feed trees. You'll, we'll talk to Richard Fodd or, or somebody 
some flatland hunter and they're talking about feed trees and, and how it's like a tiller, you know, under the tree. And you just really never see that there. Well, I found two last year that were like that. And both of them were on very steep slopes, like slopes you could just about fall off of. But dude, the sign there and there was oaks dropping. I mean, all over really, but it's like they were feeding super, super hard in this one area where it was really, really steep. And one of them was also a mountain laurel thicket too, which was interesting. And I found a big, big bed in there. Uh, and then like a ton of feed sign and crap around the bed when I was squirrel hunting. Um, I actually shot a squirrel and it fell off in that laurel thicket. And that's why I was in there. I was crawling through there looking for that squirrel. I found all this deer sign. Um, and then the other spot too, there was, there was plenty of feed down in the flatter parts of the SMZ. And there was, there was sign down there, but it like wasn't as concentrated. And it was like this, these really, really steep spots. It was so concentrated. There was just crap everywhere. And I think that it might have to do with them using that terrain because they're not getting pressured. And this isn't really even a super high pressure area. I mean, people definitely hunt it. And I know a guy that runs cameras in there a decent bit, but it's like they were sucked into that, that really, really steep stuff. And it was like a big noticeable difference. One thing when y'all are scouting that steep stuff, if y'all start running into a lot of deer crap, I would really pay attention in those kind of areas because it's something you just don't find a lot, especially in like lower deer density areas. You can go for so far before you run into a pocket of deer. So if y'all see that, really keep that in your mind. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I was trying to make it. I couldn't make it out to hunt that thing that week, but I was texting JT. I was like, dude, go hunt this spot, man. Like it's covered up. There was fresh rubs coming across and, and, uh, whip rubs. It was early season. I really like seeing those whip rubs, man. They get me fired up. Uh, I feel yeah. like they're actually a great people. I feel like people get, when I, I used to be like, I'd go out and I'd find them. And you're talking about a, a rub on a tree the size of your pinky. And I used to be like, oh, a little pencil rub, you know, like some spike coming in here, acting all big and bad. But, dude, I've had some really good luck, especially in Georgia. Hunt, yeah. Hunting especially, over those whip rubs. Yeah, early season, you know, those first rubs that pop up, those whip rubs, those are different than the little pine saplings that you're finding, you know, on a logging road during the rut. You know, the big difference in the two. Yeah. Um, if you find those little clusters of, of rubs that pop up in early season, those can be really good locations. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in Georgia, I mean, you hunting, hunting places where bucks are traveling to a, a dove field to actually go feed in a dove field. And I, I found like a line of those little whip rubs coming out of this bedding area. And sure enough, it was like early in the afternoon. It was like two o'clock. It was way before dark. And I had, I had bucks coming out on me. Well, another thing you were talking about is the whole idea of the bedding and how that bedding could differ based off areas with more open cover versus areas with like highly um, dense, highly intense cutting, like clear cuts have been done. Really, that's what it is. It's like yeah. the density. Um, and that's one reason why, yeah, I'm excited to, you know, potentially be hunting an area that's a lot more kind of big wood setting. Uh, still has cuts, like still definitely has logging activity, but it's nothing like what we've been used to you know, the past, at least for me, the past eight to 10 years. Uh, so it'll be super interesting to kind of see if there is a huge change in bedding location and also just like the, like where some of these deer are actually, especially bucks are like bedding at. 
and maybe not so much diving into a lot of that thick stuff, but betting much more with a visual observation. And to me, it makes more sense. It makes sense like what Paul says and what Shane says is like them having multiple beds, especially talking to Buck here and like slowly working their way throughout the morning back into a place they're actually going to put their head down. But it makes a lot of sense to bed more in an area you have a, a, an observation or you can actually see. Because if you think about it, you know, the deer's sight's pretty solid, but of course, smell and hearing's great too. With uh, well, especially the number one is going to be their nose. But it's like if you bed with a with a visual advantage and also have some kind of like thermal uprise or thermal rising or something in that spot. To me, you have so much more of an advantage as long as you're not going to lay your head down there. Is this a spot to chew your cud? That makes way more sense than diving off in the thick stuff, where like, maybe you can smell something but you can't see crap. Like I just feel like again, if a buck's by himself, he's alone, he's watching his back. I feel like, and you hear a lot of these guys from the Midwest talk about like, yeah, bucks betting with a visual advantage. And it's like, for whatever reason down where we're at, you just don't see it in the one piece of public land we're talking about. But like where Shane's at and Paul's at, it seems like the more that big wood setting where you're in like mature timber, older timber, they're betting with a much more visual advantage. And the guys that we're going to have on from North Carolina, that's exactly what they say. It's it's 100% visual advantage. Like the number one factor is visual advantage. Every now and then they may find a really worn out bed that's not that doesn't have like the greatest visual advantage, but most of them are always great visual advantage and it's looking straight downhill. They're not looking uphill. They're bedded where they're looking directly downhill, where that pressure is potentially going to come from, um, and with their back to some kind of structure, <coughs> whether it's a down tree, it's a blowdown, it's a mountain laurel thicket, rhododendron, whatever. They're just going to be right there on the edge of it, uh, and then looking downhill. And that's what I'm super interested in seeing if, if there's a again a, a cor- you know something that's similar like that down here in some of these areas that we're going to be looking at hunting this year. Yeah, yeah. Who was it we were talking to about the sound advantage? Was that Bill Ooh. Thompson or was that somebody else? Nah. Uh, that might have just been us talking from the GPS studies because we're like we're finding in some of these areas of more intense logging uh, that the deer are just like going into a pine thicket and just bedding randomly throughout that pine thicket all the time and we're like they can't see anything they probably can't smell worth the crap and that really thick cover low down to the ground and what was like what's the advantage and you were talking about i remember you bringing it up it might have been a guess but i think you brought it up uh just that's that sound advantage where they're just getting in like the thickest crap ever and like nothing's getting to them without them hearing it where were we hunting at it seemed like we were hunting somewhere where you couldn't go through it without making all kinds of noise. Was it cattails? I can't remember, man. Uh, It may have been our Missouri trip. Seems like there was somewhere. I cannot remember. It seemed like somewhere where me and Clay were, were hunting, you could not get into an area without making all kinds of noise. Well, uh, and another thing too, we're talking about how it's so different and, and, areas with less intense logging pressure again kind of going back to that gps data we were looking at last year and hopefully we're going to get to look at again soon is in the areas of really intense logging i was finding a lot of a lot of bucks specifically now i don't know the age of these bucks but you'd have some bucks who would pretty reliably go back to some spots and then you have other buck, and there might be like six beds he's using like clearly where he's going to a spot in daylight and he's spending like four or five hours there at a time. Like he's obviously bedded there. Um, there were some that were pretty reliable where they'd have like between like four and seven of those. But then there were some where the dude, they were just all over the place. They would hit an SMZ and one day they're, they're bedding right here. 
And then the next day they're betting 50 yards that way. And then the next day they're betting 100 yards that way. And they're in the same thicket, but they're they're not using the same bed over and over again, which is uh, maybe one reason why uh, we've had some frustrations with the whole bed thing over the years in the places that we hunt. Because like you say, Michael, you can go out there and you can find the beds, but when it comes to using them for anything, we just haven't really had any luck. But we're, we're, we're also hunting a lot of different areas than, than Shane and Paul and some of these other guys are hunting. Yeah, for sure. Jacob, what's got you so quiet tonight, man? Oh, no. That, no. White, that, that white claw got you drunk already? <laughs> yeah, we tore it from the floor up. No. Um, no, I've, <laughs> I've been contemplating just – to me, there's there's a like there's a lot we talked about so far on this, but there's going to be a lot for next week after this part two comes out yep. that I'm super interested in discussing. But like, I don't want to mention any of it now because like, it hasn't been talked about yet. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of it. They're like dew point, very oh, interesting. You said it, bro. You said yeah, it. A little teaser. It's their reward for listening to the outro this far. Yeah. In. Anyways, there's stuff like that that I'm super interested. But like, I don't want to discuss it right now. I want to like discuss it next week after the fact. Yep. Uh, Definitely. And that's one reason I'm like, okay, like, because if I say something, I'm like, well, I'm just gonna like say what's gonna be coming out on Monday, but not in like as probably great of an explanation of what's gonna be discussed. Um, I don't know. My my thing is. I, I now think more and more, you know, the, this one piece of public land that we've talked about in the past, like, I think there's this anomaly there of kind of like what some of these bucks are doing. But I'm starting to think more and more, like, the older the buck is, he's betting. I, I just, I, I, it makes more sense after talking to a lot of these guys. It makes more sense as a buck gets older and he's more and more of a loner, he's betting more and more with a visual advantage. And there's just probably so many times you walk down the wood and you hike to a spot. And he sees you from 80 yards away as you're coming through this SMZ and he just either stays there and just doesn't move or he gets up and eases off and you never see him because you're worried about stepping on a snake and looking at your feet or whatever. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. But like I, I really think that happens more times than not. And you hear the stories all the time. Guy walks in the woods and Mike, you've talked about too. You walk in the woods and you know, you're, you're looking around like, oh, man, there ought to be a deer here. And you're like, you're messing around. You see some sign. You're putting a pin on your phone and all of a sudden a buck jumps up. That was bedded down yeah. 80 yards, 50 yards from me, 60 yards from me, and takes off running. You're like, well, what the hell? Like he was mm-hmm. better here. Well, it just it just happened to me uh, about a week ago when I was uh, scouting that new hunting club property, and I'm walking through a thicket of mountain laurel, and I just pause for a minute and trying to figure out where the trail goes, and about that time, a deer not 20 yards from me busts out of that laurel thicket i mean it sounded giant like a giant but i mean if if he wouldn't have jumped up and and gotten scared because i'd stopped i never would have known he was there Mm -hmm. yeah but i mean he got out safe i mean either way yeah that's that happened i think i might have told this but that happened to me and wayne when we were turkey hunting a couple weeks ago uh in a in a big woods setting uh at at the base of this hill where the pines dropped down this kind of thick creek bottom there's like a little diversity on the edge right there there were some vines and stuff and me and wayne were sitting there talking to some hens that were like 150 yards up the smz and he was working a box call and we were standing there talking i had my gun leaning up against the tree we were there for like five minutes and i'm standing there talking to wayne and just right in front of me like 20 yards this deer just stands up and just takes off and it had been laying there for like the whole time we were there we were there talking for like five minutes it was just watching us 
And uh, finally, it had had enough, and it just got out of there. But it's like, man, how often do they just let me walk by them and never do anything? Makes you wonder. Yeah, I just I feel like it happens way more than people think, and I think it ha- also I just this is this a uh, theory of mine. I think it also has to do with the deer's age. I feel like a younger buck, you know, depending on you know how much genetic gift that that deer was given by uh, you know its sire and the mother and everything else of uh, you know what kind of characteristics when it comes to fight or flight um, it has. But I feel like some of them are just born and get to that age that's like, I'm going to bed in the area where I can watch what's coming if there's something coming. Whether it's thick or not, I'm going to be in a spot where I have some kind of advantage, whether it's right next to the road or way the hell back in the middle of nowhere, but still in a spot where it can see. And to me, it just, it just makes more and more and more sense the more you think about it. Yeah. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. And I, I went back to the conversation we had with uh, 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 Bill Thompson from Spartan Forge last year in the first episode where we kind of were hammering him on. You know, he was saying pretty much all these books are bedded in areas, especially these older deer in areas that have, um, you know, more open cover or in an area that looks like he's bedding with a, you know, visual advantage. And we kept, you know, hitting on them like, dude, well, what about, you know, excess hunting pressure? You know, we've seen them in the thickets and blah, 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 blah. And it's the more and more I think about it, it's like, I feel like maybe they go in those thickets to maybe like lay, truly lay their head down. Mm-hmm. But like, it doesn't make sense. If I'm just chewing cud, why would you chew cud in the middle of a thicket where you can't see anything around you? Yeah, you might be able to smell something. You might be able to hear it. But to me, it just makes more sense, especially an older deer. Get to the edge and, of that stuff and bed <laughs> up where you can see something. Yeah. Well, it makes complete sense. I mean, if you think about it, if if I was awake, I would want a visual advantage. If I was asleep, I mean, we set alarm clocks to wake yep. us up. Mm. I mean, it's sound. So, like, if 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 you want, if you go to thicker cover, you're you're getting in there for you to be able to hear something coming. It just makes complete sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and you can, man, you can go so deep with this stuff. And how many times, how many like really good hunters have we talked to? Who are talking about? Yeah, man, those big bucks—they sneak out. They ne- they don't go busting out like a, you know, you you're jumping at that two year old buck, that basket rack, and he's tearing out of there as fast as he can. And that big buck, I always go back to the story that Mister Benny tells about squirrel hunting. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees like a nice buck standing there, a mature buck. And that buck sees him, and he's not looking at the buck. And so I, maybe the buck doesn't realize that Benny has seen him. And he's like, that buck just like got real low and just turned around and as quiet as he could, just snuck out of there the way he came. He didn't blow. He didn't, he didn't do any of that. And we talked to so many other guys who've had that exact same experience and just think about, and these are like some of the best woodsmen that we can possibly find. Think about, you know, Joe Blow out there who's not really paying that well of attention, that good of attention. And these bucks are, you know, busting them and then sneaking out. And you just never knew that they were ever there. So, yeah. Well, it happened to me like 10 years ago in this a hunting club down in Bullock County. And I had, it was early season. There was a bachelor group of five bucks that came in. One of them got around me. I didn't know it. It blew and ran off. And I watched all five of those deer. The, the other, uh, the other three bucks that were a little bit smaller, maybe all the way up to like an eight point, they all blew and followed the first deer that ran off. But the biggest deer in behind, the very last one, all I could see was his head and his rack. And he looked straight over there at me like he was like staring through my soul. 
<laughs> and he did not make a sound and turn around and went a different direction than all those other big uh, or all those other you know bucks. It, it was just that that one little thing is just eye opening that you know you've got all these other you know some of them are shooter bucks and they're all running off and making noises, but that one he knew exactly how to get out of there safely, which yeah. was not making a sound. If you, if you think about this, and Angel, I'll let you kind of hit on what you're going to say, but if you think about this, drawing attention to you never like ends well. Yeah. And anything, like anything, like it doesn't, it doesn't end well. So it's like, you know, younger deer doesn't know what it's doing. It's just trying to make a big, you know, commotion again, older buck slipping out of there, dude. Yep. Easing out. But anyways, and, and that, Hey, Michael, I mean, you remember a couple of years back in North Alabama, slipping around in those cattail, that flooded timber and cattails and stuff. You remember you were talking about sneaking by some of these little, uh, islands out in that water and you stepped on like a water bottle or something and you <clears> heard <throat> something sneak out the backside. Tell that one again. That's, ah, that's a good one. It's a dude. good one. Well, well, I mean, I, I felt like all these deer trails were running from these crop fields out to these little, to the edge of the water almost when there was these little bitty islands and I'm sneaking through there and all of a sudden there's, it's full of, you know, trash and stuff like where the water has come up and then it went back down and just left all the trash sitting on top. And so, yeah, if you need to cut that, you can, cause I know you're cringing over there, Myers. I can't, I can't remember if it was tin or if it was one of those plastic bottles, but I mean, it made the loudest noise <laughs> in the world. Here I have snuck like hundreds of yards, <laughs> dead silent in my, in my mind. And I step on the one and only freaking bottle up under all these little twigs and it just busts my whole thing. I just walked right past the deer. It probably wasn't 10 yards from me. Like, I mean, it was right there. And it bust out in the direction where I just came from. Like, I mean, it just, and the same thing happened to me last year. I was uh, up there on Black Warrior and I dive off the hillside and hit a uh, a trail with rubs. I, fi- I find it, I go, there's a bluff gap and I'm sitting there trying to like catch my breath and everything. And um, I sit there for like 30 minutes. And I'm trying to contemplate, like, where are these deer going to come from? Where are they going? And all of a sudden, right next to me, a deer blows out of there. For 30 minutes, that deer was sitting there, and it did not move. It was waiting on me, and finally, it just had enough and wigged out of there. Um, it, it just goes to show you how how long they'll they'll take something like that how much you know you would you wouldn't think that they would tolerate that much but every single time i think that there's no way a deer could do something they they do it and prove me wrong well you don't say that because next thing you know they're gonna be climbing trees like you mentioned earlier (laughs) i swear somebody sends us a picture with a deer up in a tree (laughs) yeah i you know um with what you were talking about, Paul actually mentioned that uh, in this part one episode where, uh, you know, some of these bucks will hold so tight. Like he'll get into a stand. I mean, in there, 80 yards from a deer, get up in the tree, 
and like be sitting there all of a sudden he sees like a flicker like he doesn't necessarily know the buck's there sees a flicker of movement and the buck's there and he's like oh i'm busted the deer 100 percent saw me or heard me and like this the deer does not move until after dark there's like you're yeah. you know he's not gonna leave like, he's not just gonna run out there. he knows where you're at he's like well right. you know it's not getting any closer i'm just gonna hold tight and wait the darkness and then ease out of here and uh yeah. he, he talked about that in that first part episode yeah it's 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 crazy to think about you know which we've talked about it in the past couple of years you know like we've we've got to have deer all around us like because you can't just go scout five miles and not pass by a deer it's just the deer not letting you know that you you know walked by them i mean there's no telling how many times we're we're usually in there and we're in the right spot, especially at that WMA that we hunt a lot that has a lot of cover. There's no telling how many times we are hunting in the spot that we should have been hunting at. We're just either our access was wrong. Uh, they, they heard us, saw us, and they're just holding tight, just like you mentioned. Yep. I don't know, man. It's, it's interesting. It, it is super, super interesting. I just, I just, I now believe and have the, the understanding. And this is kind of funny because again, a year and a half last year, like less than a year ago, I didn't I didn't really see this as being a fact. Um, at least in some of the areas that we hunted on. But now after thinking about it and some of these older mature bucks that you know you might get on camera, like they've got dude, you, you can't live your whole life laying inside of a pine thicket, you know, quivering at the side, you know, at the um the thought of, you know, someone hunting you on the outside. Like the deer is going to have to be in the area. He's got all the foods. He's got the food. He's got the water. He's got the cover. But he's betting an area with some. It, it just makes sense betting an area with a visual advantage. And you just don't see that deer because he sees or hears you coming long before you get there, um, or long before you even think about necessarily setting up. And that he's already slipping out there. I mean, Mike, you said that uh, last year, two years ago, bucking one of those areas off that piece of public land was across the drainage. You were walking in or setting up a stand or something. And the buck got up from the other across the drainage from you and was bedded on the edge. And he just kind of got up and was gone before you got a good look at him. Uh, I don't know if that was from two years ago, or three years ago. Um, yeah, that was the spot that camera uh, that Andrew went in and put all the cameras. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Uh, hey, that area. I was I was just about to actually bring up that area. Um, I I loaded up this one thicket with cameras. I just, I stuck several cameras across this thicket on on good travel corridors that were proven they had buck sign on them. We'd seen deer on them in the past. And I was expecting to have very consistent deer movement, but buck movement too. Cause we're like, well, they're in these thickets. And, uh, I, I did get a lot of bucks on them, but that, that buck movement significantly increased during the rut, which is obviously is expected, but I got so few, uh, buck pictures outside of the rut in those same spots where I, I was like, okay, well, the deer, like they're supposed to be in this thicket. Why are they, if they're really like living in that thicket, I think I should have had them more out, not just in the rut, which maybe I was on the wrong trails. It goes back to, you're looking at a like 10 square yard area. So you really don't know what's going on, but also, I mean, from the studies that we looked at, I mean, how tight were some of those core areas? Like, I mean, what we were talking about just yards, like not literal yards but like you know what 50 yards wide or something like that or a a 50 yard area and the deer was staying in there the whole time and i mean it's it's the same thing 
they just outside of the rut. I mean, these more mature deer that they're not going and covering ground. Like, you know, a lot of the younger deer are They're They're completely fine. As long as they have everything that they need. Well, that's why I'm excited to see what Shane's got. Can I get back to Shane's episode for a part three episode talking about travel and what he's seen from hit from running that many cameras on these bucks that he's been tracking, not only from early season, but during the rut and postseason, and how much their movement actually changes after running that many cameras in an area where he's got different bucks kind of living, you know, in that 800 acres and, and traveling mm, through there. I'd be very you know, curious. If you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. Because, I mean, Mike, it makes sense what you're saying, but I'm curious to see what his data shows based off what he was seeing on trail camera, too. Well, I'm curious also to see if there's any difference between what we're seeing in thicker cover and what the cameras are picking up in a more mountainous area mm-hmm. where there's not, like, a bunch of thickets. I wonder if they're, I wonder if it matters to them as much or if they're used to being in that kind of terrain in that area. I wonder if they move more or less. Yep. Oh, I'd love to know. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point about like, maybe potentially this is a theory, maybe potentially in the mountains, they got to move a little bit more to get all their resources versus maybe hill country, flat land, but areas with a ton of diversity, ton of food thick covers like they don't have to travel so wide mm-hmm. and their travel their home range and core area could be much much tighter at yeah. certain points of the year uh, i'll tell you my theory right now on that that thicket i just mentioned there was several nice bucks really nice bucks in there but there was one buck that was like a big big deer big old slammer yeah one of the biggest deer i've ever gotten on camera out there and he to my surprise i kept getting them at like midnight and 1 a.m I mean, smack in the middle of that thicket. I'm like, what are you doing in there? You're supposed to be frolicking in the open hardwoods and stuff in the middle of the night. Like, But he's dead in the middle of this thicket in the middle of the night. And I think what it was is, I, I got two theories. Either he was bedding somewhere else and he was coming in there to visit does, or it's such a big thicket. Now I'm kind of thinking these does are concentrated in this one part of it, and he's almost like on a different point, you know, on the outskirts. And he's just like swinging through when one comes in because JT got him on camera. One of the two times we got him on camera during legal shooting hours, he was across the SMZ right next to a busy road that tons of hunters use and are driving down all the time. And he was working his way up an SMZ to go cross that road, going away from the thicket that I kept getting him in at, uh, like early in the morning, like right there at legal light going back to bed. Yeah, I guess going back to bed, crossing the he's about to cross the road, or, or maybe he was or just bed going right in, on the road, or maybe bed right on the road. I don't know. It's just a total, uh, like a, it raised more questions mm. than answers that those cameras in the thicket last year. And but that, that all that being said, you could go in there and you could hunt that thicket, and if you could do it effectively, you you could kill the crap out of some bucks. Not this is not to take away from the fact that if you go and sit that, if you're you know peak rut and you go sit that spot with a rifle you know and you got a little ground blind for like three or four days in a row like you're gonna you're gonna get a shot in the buck for sure several bucks so listen i really think we need to put the buddy system to work this season and walk in drop a person off and keep going to another spot like i don't know i just i think that i think that it would really work, like cu- really good. Let the curiosity kill that buck, man. Yep, definitely. Well, I know a freaking perfect spot for it that I had. I had Paul and Shane do a little map scouting for me and Jacob, so we got some spots to go look at. 
that I'm pretty excited about, especially there's one where the buddy system would be perfect. Awesome. Well, guys, you got anything else? I'm, I'm excited for part two. Part Real excited for part two. Part two on Monday. Hey, Mike, listen, uh, there, there was a couple of listeners I saw uh, when the outro came out last week, and then Monday's episode came out. And I think, actually, it might have been uh, Mike Perry had shared the episode, and someone commented on there saying uh, that they were excited to listen to it, but they hope it was worth the hype because Michael Pike was hyping up this episode. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, it it's one of my favorites. Yep. This this whole this that whole podcast that we did, uh, definitely one of my favorites. Absolutely. It's not my favorite. Absolutely. So again, part two comes out on Monday, guys. And again, write in, leave us like. Well, you didn't hear on this first part because we didn't get to the outro or the the, the very last. Uh, part. I was wondering why. Yeah, Mike. I was wondering why nobody left us questions. <laughs> I was like, holy cow! I was like, why did nobody leave us any uh, questions in the reviews? Well, well Mike, say, say it right now. Tell let people yeah, know. Let, let them know, Pike. Yeah. So that that last one it ran over a little too long, so we split it up into two episodes. But at the end of it. I basically mentioned, hey, if y'all have any questions, go leave it in the reviews because not only are your questions posted there where we can read them really easy, just like the reviews, but it would also help us too. So yeah. it's like a win-win for everybody. So y'all go leave us some some feedback on the episode, ask a question, and uh, you know, there's a chance that we could ask that you know as a follow-up when we do this next episode. Definitely. Definitely. Mm. I like it. Call uh, to action, boys. I like it, dude. Yeah, absolutely. So awesome. Well, appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed Monday's episode. And again, make sure you tune in on this coming Monday's episode for the part two with Shane Parker and Paul Putera. You do not want to miss it. It's a great one. As uh, Michael Pike said, uh, and you hear it in, in the second part because he says it in this episode, uh, this may be one of the better episodes of, or one of the best that we've ever done, especially in the part two. So we appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. Thanks again. Like Mike said, go leave us some reviews, leave us some questions uh, in some of the Apple reviews. And also real quick, make sure you go check out that Southern Waters Fishing Podcast. We crank out some great podcasts over there, guys. Appreciate that support. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, Andrew, real quick before wrapping up, can you talk about real quick on the subscriptions for ad-free podcasts? And how people can kind of sign up for that. Yes, sir. Okay, ad-free podcasts, Apple Podcasts. If you are listening on Apple right now, which about 84% of you are. are. <laughs> and, and women. But yeah. yeah, you guys and gals listening on a, on an Apple Podcast. You can subscribe, uh, super cheap, $1.99 a month. That's going to give you... $1.99 a month. $199 a month. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew's got to go full time, everyone. $199 a month. <laughs> oh, <God>. Anyway, <laughs> uh, $1.99 a month, you get ad free content. So, all these new episodes coming out are going to have no ads. And uh, I, I also went back and went ahead and uploaded ad free versions for a lot of our most popular episodes in the back catalog, too. And uh, you'll be able to listen, not get any advertisements at all on them, which will be convenient. And that goes for the Southern Outdoorsman podcast as well as the Southern Waters podcast. So, both of those, you get both of those uh, for $1.99 a month. And, or, I mean, if you don't really care about the ads very much, but you want to help us out, uh, it's a huge help to us. $1.99 a month or, goes a, a very long way, You like longer than, than you'd expect. So uh, if you're just wanting to help us out, that's a great, cheap option to help us out every month. We really appreciate that. And, or you can do the one-time annual payment. 
or you can do a one-time annual payment. It's a $20 a month or a $20 a year. I meant, uh, so that that's a huge help too. Or you could go join Patreon where on Patreon, I actually already did a video in regards to this podcast series where I just kind of went through and gave a basic overview of what Paul and Shane are talking about when they're kind of describing the topography of some of these hubs. And so I went in there and I kind of pointed out a couple different examples of generally what they're talking about. So while you're listening to these podcasts, you have a good picture in your head of what they're actually talking about and it'll make a lot more sense to you. So the first video is already up on that. I'm going to do another one on it. So uh, if you're already a Patreon, make sure you go check that out and look at that. If you're not a Patreon yet and that's uh, interesting to you, go check out Patreon. You can join one of the tiers there and get access to those videos as well. Patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Appreciate y'all's support. And as Michael Pike says on most episodes, y'all stay Southern. Hey, everybody. This is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast, a show where we sit down with outdoorsmen of the Ozark Mountains region to talk all things hunting and fishing. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts on everything from bear hunting, to fishing for smallmouth and trout, and discussing big questions like what happened to all the quail in the southeast. If you're enjoying this show, then I know you'll enjoy the Ozark Podcast. You can listen to the show on all podcasting platforms and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.